You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. We've seen over the last few weeks that Paul, writing from prison, is writing in the midst of facing opposition himself. And he's writing to a church made up of most likely predominantly Gentile Christians in a very Roman area that he knows are facing opposition and will only face more and more opposition in the future. Opposition can do a lot of things when we come up against it, but I think two things that it can do is it can cause you to search for security for defense, for comforts during that time of opposition. But it can also cause you to question whether this goal you're striving for, this thing you're aiming for, is really worth it. I think that's exactly what Paul realizes and why he begins by saying that as he has before in this book, in this letter, for the Philippians to rejoice but to back that up with a firm reminder. A reminder that sounds so familiar, he might even say it's like saying the same thing over and over again. But he says that it is safe for them, that it is good for them, that it will protect them during the storm. And what he does in order to unpack this reminder is actually begin by warning them against what isn't safe for them. And so he says in verse 2, to look out for the dogs, to look out for the evildoers, to look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This might seem a little bit out of left field, but if you were to read through the book of Acts or read the book of Galatians, what you would find is that there was a group that oftentimes traveled amongst the early Christian faith communities. Oftentimes, uh, they're referred to as Judaizers. And this particular brand of teaching taught that if Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, then when people converted to faith in the Messiah, they should begin to follow all the ceremonial features of the Mosaic Law, of what we might know as the Old Covenant. Out of all the things that they should do, chief among them is for the males to be circumcised. It's understandable that someone might think that. After all, for the old covenant, circumcision was almost like Christian baptism. It was how you converted to the faith in Yahweh, in the Lord. But where these teachers got it wrong is that they asserted time and time again that these practices were required for people who have placed their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That they have to do these things. They have to be circumcised in order to have a right standing before him. That these outward physical acts are required in order for them to be considered ceremonial clean, to be considered acceptable or appropriate in God's eyes. 
But Paul turns it on his head because he says, on its head because he says that these false teachers, they're actually the ones who are unclean. That they are mutilators of the flesh, which was outlawed in the old covenant, and that they are dogs, animals that Jews would have considered unclean. Why is this the case? Why can he make this strong assertion? If he, he says in verse 3, we are the circumcision. He says that because of Jesus, believers are the true circumcision. And why is that? Because they, believers in Christ, are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What does this mean? Where is he getting this from? Well, for the Judaizers, they would have been holding tight to the law, and Paul, I think, would have taken those intellectual or theological opponents straight to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where God himself declares that what is needed to be right before him is not a circumcision of the flesh, but a spiritual circumcision of the heart. That we need God to do something within us. I think it's also why Paul in Romans 2.29 will write that a Jew is truly a Jew inwardly. That circumcision is indeed a matter of the heart, by the spirit and not by the letter of the law. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this expectation building of God's people being called to repentance and finally becoming what he intended them to be. In Jeremiah 31, the new covenant that is promised promises that God will do some spiritual heart surgery on his people, that he will take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that he will literally soften their hearts so that they can follow his instruction, so that they can be humble before him. In Ezekiel 36 and 37, in the midst of an exile in Babylon, in the midst of persecution and opposition from within and without, Ezekiel promises that the Holy Spirit will do the same thing, will reawaken and reanimate the cold, dead, and sinful hearts of the people of God. And what Paul says is that the Philippians, they have this heart circumcision. And the evidence of it is that they are truly worshiping God as those who have been indwelt by his spirit and who humbly glorify Christ rather than themselves, rather than asserting anything that they can do, they glorify their savior for what he has done to make them right before God by offering his life up to secure their forgiveness through his own suffering. And so what these teachers have missed is what Paul ends verse three at, is that they have a divided confidence because at least in part, they have placed some confidence in the flesh. What does this mean? This phrase, in the flesh, that we see so often in Paul's writings. John Calvin, the Swiss reformer, said that the phrase in the flesh refers to everything outside of Christ. And so that's a pretty big umbrella. But it is 
anything, as Dustin put in our sermon writing meeting, apart from the spiritual renewal found in Christ and the Holy Spirit. That means it is, yes, indeed, worldliness and overt rebellion against what God has said is good and right and appropriate, but it is also proud self-reliance and self-righteousness that rather than receiving our standing before God, asserts our place before God. But when you receive the forgiveness of the Lord by trusting that his son did what you can't, you have everything. In contrast, if we try to assert our position before God, the reality is, is that all we have is our self-righteousness. And then we're only left with ourselves. But when we realize that God has done everything for us, we have all that we need. That this righteousness from God, as Paul refers to it at the end of this passage, is the righteousness that only God himself can secure, but he gives to us freely. All we have to do is look to Jesus and to realize that he did what we couldn't, that he paid the price that we couldn't pay ourselves, that he dealt with our sin, that he met us with his grace. And so Jesus plus nothing in the life of the Christian is everything. It's all you need. But when you fall into the trap of Jesus plus something is required to be right before God, you have nothing. At least that's what Paul's clearly saying here. Because rather than putting all of your trust in God's grace in Jesus, you're saying that there's something that you can do that you don't need God to do it all for you. That you can do some of it yourself. And so what are these things for you? That you might find yourself tying unconsciously or willfully to Jesus as something that either you're deciding you need in order to be right before God, or that you might be asserting that others need in order for them to be right before God. For you, is it your comfort or your work? Is it your family or your friends or your community? Is it your church membership, your political affiliation, whatever social cause you're involved in, your service even before the Lord or is it your comparative righteousness? Where you look at someone and say, at least I'm not like them and I don't struggle like with that. Or you look at your old self and say, at least I'm not like how I was. Or maybe it's that you're looking to who you hope God will make you and saying that if I can just get there, I know I'll be right before God. Paul says that what we need is already here. All we need is here. But I think we might ask, how does Paul know this? How can he be so certain? And what he tells us here is that he has lived it. If you look at verse 4, he says that 
after saying that uh, the believers, the Christians, are those who put no confidence in the flesh, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In the values of these Judaizers, Paul had it all. He checked every box and more, because rather than just adhering to the law, he took it upon himself to mete out anyone that he felt like was straying from the path of Judaism as he knew it. He was a religious leader and a teacher. He was, as he said, from all outward appearances, blameless according to the law. With that, Paul, in his own context, would have also found a lot of social security and status. He was a spiritual leader for the entire people of Israel. That would have no doubt offered him privileges and security. It would have given him a cause and a community. But something happened to Paul. If you were to flip over to Acts 9, you would see that on his way to persecute the church in Damascus, Jesus met him. He was running as fast as he could in an possibly ignorant but definitely willful rebellion against the Lord that he thought he was serving. And in the midst of that enmity and opposition to God's plans and purposes, Jesus met him. And he welcomed him. And in that moment of profound grace, what happened is Paul realized that for all of his zeal, for all of his legalistic rigidity, for all the boxes he could check on his spiritual resume, he didn't have the God he thought he was striving for. It begs a question that we all have to answer is what do we ultimately want when we come to the Lord? Do we just want our standing before him or do we want him as he is? The beauty is that he's made a way. And that for Paul, who didn't have a right standing before God or God himself, everything changed. Let's see how he says it changed, beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When Paul encountered the risen and glorified Jesus and realized that all of his sin and his opposition to God was dealt with in that gracious offer of a right standing before God, his whole outlook changed. 
I think it's hard to even have a category for the kind of change that Paul is describing. But it's the kind of change that caused all of his pluses to begin to look like minuses. If you're an accountant, all of his debits started to look like credits. All of his assets suddenly looked like liabilities and his profits looked like losses. Every one of the treasures he had accumulated out of his own effort and striving looked nothing like trash. And he was delighted to treat it as such. To give up all of those prior privileges and connections and influence because he found someone worth it. Surpassingly worth it is what he says. He found a God that was willing to accept him in the midst of his most fierce and zealous opposition and his most proud self-righteousness. This is exactly what Jesus says about the kingdom of God. That it is like a treasure hidden in a field or a pearl of great price that when we stumble upon it, we are willing to sell everything that we have in order to obtain it. Do we believe that Jesus is that valuable? I really want to. But I know that the way I spend my time or my attention, that I don't always act like it. That I'm always fighting my inner Pharisee. That I'm constantly finding security in my efforts or my gifts or my ministry or my present level of sanctification. And I'm constantly needing to hear these words that all of those things, if they are solely in the flesh, if they are apart from Jesus, they are worthless. But what is the gain that we're offered? The gain, as Paul says it, is Christ himself that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. When we have Jesus and nothing else, we still have everything. And when we find ourselves in him, we can be content and satisfied no matter what opposition we face because we know that for the thing that matters most, it is ours. And from that position of acceptance and acknowledgement in God's favor, we can persevere We can continue to strive for faithfulness, not because we have to, but because now we can. It's how when we are faced with our own opposition or suffering, we can faithfully follow Paul as Paul was following Jesus. This Jesus who, in the midst of all of the privileges of heaven, as Philippians 2 says, gave it all up and submitted to the Father's will 
so that he could do more than we could ever think or imagine, so that he could accomplish all of God's purposes, so that he could set the hinge point in history. And he did it not through asserting himself or putting down his enemies, but by denying himself. This is how we, in the present moment, sisters and brothers, can know the power of his resurrection. Because we can have great hope that in the life to come, no matter what happens here, we will experience life and joy that transcends all of our present circumstances. But don't sell yourself short because you can also know it now. Some of us need to stop working for our approval and remember that it's only found in Jesus. But some of us also need to remember that even as we acknowledge and realize that we are found in Jesus, that it doesn't exempt us from working. When Paul talks about the resurrection power in Romans 8, he talks about it as liberation from sin. As Spurgeon says, it's seeing Jesus leave the tomb by leaving the tomb of worldliness ourselves. It's a straight and narrow road that we're following. And on one side, we can fall and be lost to our own self-righteousness and have nothing. And on the other side, we can spend all of our time and energy chasing after things which are not going to profit us. But what Jesus says is whichever way you might tend to lean or limp, that if it's today to take up your cross, to deny yourself and follow him because he's the way and the truth and the life. Let's pray. Lord, as the song says, we need thee every hour we need thee. And it's so easy to rest on where we're at now, to rest on what you've carried us through, or just to rest on what we might rightly believe about your love and your grace. But you call us to richer things. and have given us the most wonderful of treasures in your son, Jesus. In him, you have freed us from ourselves and our striving, and you have offered us a burden that is light because our Savior has already carried it for us. When our own successes or failures may obscure your infinite and abundant grace, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the wonders that are greater than we could ever secure for ourselves. That when we begin to feel selfish or self-righteous, that you would help us to see the cross where your son willingly laid down his life for our behalf. Help us to be quick to come before your throne of grace, to cast ourselves upon your infinite mercy, 
and to lay all of our sin and our burdens and our worries before you, knowing that you won't turn us away. Forgive us, O God. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.